If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, you'll hear an interview I recently did with the historian Janet Nelson about the medieval king Charlemagne. Janet's the author of a new biography of Charles, and we met at her home in London to discuss his remarkable life and achievements. For listeners who might not know anything about Charlemagne Mm. or the world that he lived in, Mm. could you start by giving us a very brief primer about Charlemagne? Yes. Well, Charlemagne was born in 748, and uh, he lived to a ripe age for those times. Uh, to be 65, which is quite old. Um, His father had founded a new dynasty in what was what you might call um, the centre of Europe, France and and, uh, Germany. But uh, the most important thing about his reign, I think, was that it began in quite a small um, area and got bigger and bigger so that in the end most of Europe, what is now Europe if, or if you prefer to say um, like the EU uh, that all those territories were directly or indirectly part of his empire. I think the name Charlemagne will be familiar to a lot of people, yeah. but you, in the book, choose to largely avoid that title right. and instead call him Charles. Why did you choose right. to do that? I think I say this in the, in the book, that at my mother's knee I was taught to be very sceptical about great men. And uh, so I, did, I didn't want to begin with the notion that greatness was was a kind of foregone conclusion. I'm starting with him as when he was born. So this baby, it was not a foregone conclusion what he was going to make of his life. Looking back, of course, we know what happened. But at the time, people didn't know what happened. Why did you want to write this biography? Why do you think that we need a new biography of Charlemagne? It's not a conventional narrative and because um, it focused so much on the family on the dynasty, a lot about um, ab- about um, women and children and the relationships between siblings, between parents and children, between different members of the family. How do you think that those relationships impacted on Charlemagne and his reign? Far from being a foregone conclusion how this dynasty would work out, there were all kinds of tensions and unforeseen events, which meant that it was anything but plain sailing. Well, another theme that I wanted to bring out, apart from the dynasty, was the notion of the creation of an empire. Charlemagne himself is constantly experimenting. He's encountering new situations. He thought it would work, but he couldn't be sure. 
So do you think it's this emphasis on empire building or the emphasis on personal relationships that makes this a new approach to Charlemagne? I think both. And starting with dynasty, because I I think people underestimate that. Um, Other historians have underestimated the importance of these very close kin-type relationships, um, which only by using those relationships could the regime work at all. The whole family was involved in making it work. So Charlemagne had a lot of children and he marries the girls off to men he can trust. He uh, gets his sons involved in government. He gets nephews, cousins, uncles, aunts. They're all, in some way or other, plugged into his regime. Can we get a sense of what any of those relationships meant, not only in a political sense, Mm. but in a personal sense? Yes, I think that it's a a lot about personalities. Um, The... The only way it could work is Charles trusting his own um, guesswork about who would be trustworthy. And on the whole, he was very good at that. He he had a a huge governmental apparatus and it was at different levels. But at the end of the day, the buck stopped with him. So he... He was very, um, in the end, I think he became more and more skilled at choosing his agents. Um, to pick up on that point a bit more, you you do make a lot of effort to, to reconstruct or get a bit closer to his personality as well mm. as his politics in the yes. book. And you suggest that more of his personality yeah. can be known than first meets the eye. Yeah. What can we discern about the personality of Charlemagne from the sources available? All early medieval historians start with moaning about how scarce the sources are. And I think that's a a fair point. On the other hand, there are a lot of sources which I would say most historians have not thought was terribly interesting or well, things like about relationships between mothers and children and between mem- family members of various kinds. To me, th- these are really important things to think about. We're not just talking about politics and military matters, though those are very important, but we're also talking about um, members of families in a, in a space, in a palace, in a, in a room, in a bedroom, and what, and what comes out of their, these encounters with each other. Close family members uh, either cooperated with each other or in the end became rivals of each other. So it was, it, it was um, you could say, uh, this powerful ruler has three sons. Do they get on? I mean, these are the questions that, that the father would be asking, say. Would they be able to work together? Or would there be endemic tensions and rivalries between even these very small groups of people? 
And there's an awful lot of that going on in every generation. But sometimes they get along fine. Charles has these uh, wives uh, sequentially. Roughly speaking, you could say every 10 years, one of them would die. And that meant a lot of changes because of other kin. The, the, the wife would have her own network because of her own kin. But the next wife, there'd be another lot of people that need to be um, manipulated in some way or made use of or not to sound too instrumental about it, but the relationship between the ruler and the people he could trust would involve a new lot of people who would be the new wife's kin. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He would he would get a message, of course, and express that message in terms of the trust that he had in the person he was talking to. A, a sort of dialogic kind of um, relationship that he had, which made his, uh, his government work. Charles's reign is often cited as a as a high point of culture. Yeah. Um, the Carolingian Renaissance. Yeah. Um, what was his involvement in that? Can we see him as contributing to that or responsible for that? I think in in, in a large, uh, to a considerable, a very considerable extent, he is doing just that. He's creating um, a cultural change, a new kind of way of. Um, collaborating with people and plugging into this ancient civilization that was Rome um, to give it respectability, but to also to give it um, a common language, because Latin is what they what these people are uh, operating in, and and in that in that sense it makes it easier for them to communicate with each other particularly as they're trying to set up schools which will do precisely that. Using this um, common language was um, a way in, a way that brought the empire together and, and the, the system of communications worked very much better than you might have otherwise expected. So it sounds like he was essentially a combination between a moderniser and an innovator on the one hand, yeah, but then yeah. he was also... Took a lot of inspiration from earlier yeah. systems. Would yes. you say that's fair? Yes. yes, I think that's absolutely right. That he he was drawing on the past, but he was also innovating, and but partly by drawing in these people from different parts of what became his empire, like Spain, like Anglo-Saxon England, that was not part of the empire, and most of Spain wasn't either. But they were they had a lot of communications and connections and the bits that were very much solidly part of the empire were what's now france what's now germany what's now the netherlands what's now italy even places like um hungary like uh croatia slovenia these are these are peripheral but they were by the end of charlemagne's reign they were being incorporated. What do you think was behind his ability to incorporate all those disparate lands into one mm. empire? Was mm. it this cultural assimilation mm. and exchange, or was it his military capabilities mm. or his administration? What do you mm. think was behind it? 
all, well, all those things. But they were also, and maybe, I mean, a lot of historians would say that this was really the dynamo that kept it going. It was religion, and it was the church, and it was the, then the structure of the church, which became very much a royal um, area of interest. It was often very local, and the, the uh, system of um, dioceses, say, that, that goes back to late antiquity, Christian antiquity. But what uh, what Charles did, his father had set the way, but Charles even more so um, was to was to uh, in, embrace the church uh, and and um, commandeer posts for the people that he uh, thought would do the job properly. Um, he was very very interested in. Uh, you might almost say interfering in managing, managing the church. So the, the religious aspect of his activities wasn't just, you know, setting up this amazing um, capital at Aachen and building this church, which you can still go and visit. Um, that was very much part of a centralization effort, drawing people in sending people out again but it was it was uh, genuinely an attempt to make this a place which uh, God had had uh, appointed Charles to to construct Charles was was deeply religious Charles was was trying to commune with God and he believed that God, God was directing what he was doing and that, that came out in the case of these these people, these peripheral peoples, like in Scandinavia, like in Hungary, uh, the Saxons, they were pagan. And they and this sense of mission, conversion, that runs through the whole reign in a very um a very powerful sort of subcurrent. And what did that missionary zeal mean on the ground? How was it enforced? And yeah. did it mean that religion was essentially forced on people who didn't want it? Mm. It, it a, bit, a bit of both. To start with, I think that there, there, were, there was a lot, of, a lot of violence was involved. And then there were successive um, periods where there was less violence. And then there would be another wave of violence emanating from Charles. Charles was very interested in what was going on in the re regions at a, at a very local level. And that he, that's why he needed a cadre of able, um, let's say, uh, generals, as it were, but I'm using that as a metaphor. You know, the people that were in charge of the government as well, people who, who weren't, churchmen themselves, but they were they were required by Charles to make sure that there were parish priests around and that there were that the, the dioceses were being operated in the way that canon law said they should be. So so the whole legal system became kind of deeply, deeply infused with Christian ways, Christian institutions, church institutions from from the most powerful ones. Down to parish priests who got who were told that they had got to uh, make sure that babies were baptized, and they 
had to make sure that there were parish priests who were had schools in in villages. You can guess that a lot of it didn't happen quite as Charlemagne might have dreamt, but but it was these ideas were there and they were written down, they were put down in law books. So even long after Charles was dead, these these um, instruments of communication, conversion, uh, implementation, these continue to be used. So there was a, the, and to go back to what you said earlier about, about this uh, sort of Carolingian Renaissance, this big cultural change, the, the, the religious elements were absolutely central. Um, and they, they long, long out, outlasted Charles's reign. So what do you think overall um, was the secret to his success as an empire builder? I would say uh, it was because, A, Charles was absolutely determined to make the system work. And he trusted a lot of people who he gave official posts to, both churchy and secular. Um, but he, he was the sort of person, I think it, that if you met him, his personality was, uh, would, would be um, um, not, not necessarily overwhelming, but um, he, would, he would get a message across and express that message in terms of the trust that he had in the person he was talking to. That's how I imagine his a sort of dialogic kind of um, relationship that he had, which made his uh, his government work. So he was a very good manager, essentially. He, yes. Manage, management would be a good word to use. Um, at the very start of this um, conversation, we spoke about avoiding thinking of him as a great man, but a lot of people over time have done that historically. Yes. How has Charles's legacy, well, we should probably call him Charlemagne in this respect, because that's how he's been evoked, essentially, yes, yes. been used in more, mod- in more modern times, yes. been used as a symbol yes. um, by people. I, th- I think um, it was a lot of, um, a lot. it had a lot to do with, with um, uh, ideology, with the ideology of, of Europe. Um, Europe divided, partly when it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, Something like that was what Napoleon was trying to create. That famous picture of him, you know, gazing at the throne. Uh, so I, I, I think it, there's a, a huge gap between what Charlemagne was doing and what was going on in the 8th and 9th centuries. And what really got started in the time of the Crusades, when the Franks believed that, that they thought that Charles had gone to Jerusalem. There was by then there was a, a myth about Charles going to the Holy Land. Um, there, there was a, a real connection in the sense that Charles was very concerned about what was happening in his own lifetime in the Holy Land, um, like that the churches were falling into disrepair and that Islam was not um, favouring the church. So he sent some agents in 808 to, to go to the Holy Land and write up an account, a detailed account of all the holy places and the numbers of uh, Christian 
um, hermits and uh, custodians of these holy places. But what it then it was the Crusaders that got this notion that Charles had gone there. Not true. But they were in the footsteps of Charlemagne. That's how they pictured themselves. So the myth grows. How significant was it that Charles had such a long life and a long yeah. rule? Yeah, I, I did. I, I came up with a little idea at the, near the. Uh, I think it was might might have been near the beginning of of, of the book um, that that there was a sort of likening of Charles to Queen Victoria, that Queen Victoria had an exceptionally long life. No monarch had ever had as long life as she did. Well, she of course wasn't actually in charge of running things the way that Charles was, but she was an icon, a symbol of continuity. And I think that, uh, and then people then felt that it would always be like this, that this this was a sort of stable situation and it wasn't going to collapse. The same was, it could be said of Charles, that he was, he'd always been there. There were very few people in his empire by the early, let's say the period between 800 and 814 when he died. There were very few people that could remember a time that there hadn't been Charles. That was Janet Nelson. Janet's book, King and Emperor, A New Life of Charlemagne, is out now, published by Alan Lane. You can read my interview with her in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now, and find plenty more on medieval history at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.